Good morning, church. This is the Sunday message for October 3rd. In his biography of Steve Jobs, Walter Isaacson writes this. One sunny afternoon, when he wasn't feeling well, Jobs sat in the garden behind his house and reflected on his death. He talked about his experiences in India almost four decades earlier, his study of Buddhism, and his views on reincarnation and spiritual transcendence. I'm about 50-50 on believing in God, he said. For most of my life, I felt that there must be more to our existence than meets the eye. He admitted that as he faced death, he might be overestimating the odds out of his desire to believe in an afterlife. I like to think that something survives after you die, he said. It's strange to think that you accumulate all this experience and maybe a little wisdom. It just goes away. So I really want to believe that something survives, that maybe your consciousness endures. He fell silent for a very long time. But on the other hand, perhaps it's like an on-off switch, he said. Click, and you're gone. Then he paused again and smiled slightly. Maybe that's why I never like to put on-off switches on Apple devices. As his death loomed, the visionary Steve Jobs envisioned the afterlife. And he says he was 50-50 on believing in God. Perhaps you've been there. Perhaps you felt conflicted. Perhaps you felt torn. Mark's Gospel tells us the story of a similar experience. A man who comes to Jesus and confesses, in essence, I'm 50-50 on believing in God. Our Gospel reading comes from Mark chapter 9, 14-29. Mark chapter 9, 14-29. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing about? he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus. Everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, This kind can only come out by prayer. This is the word of the Lord. So a few weeks ago, I shared my desire to reflect on some big picture cultural streams. I asked us to consider embracing the identity of exile, and prepare ourselves to never completely fit into the categories of this world. I warned us all about what I see as the two great temptations to Christians in our time, 
Christian nationalism and secular humanism. I preached on the former two weeks ago, and this morning I'd like to address secular humanism. Connecting with our previous scripture, for those who struggle with belief in God, for those who say, I believe, but I kind of don't believe, maybe I'm 50-50, for those experiencing that, secular humanism can become an enticing offer. So what is secular humanism? It's a framework to living that rejects supernatural, divine, and religious accounts of reality. It looks to science and philosophy, but not theology, with the goal of seeking and finding human flourishing. It seeks meaning, significance, and community through measurable means. Therefore, it practices a default suspicion towards mystery and the immeasurable. It embraces the physical and practices rejection or at least suspicion towards the metaphysical. And by metaphysical, we mean beyond what is physical. Well, how is this different from atheism or agnosticism? So in some ways, it's a rebranding. For those terms find their framing in the negative, what they don't believe. So an atheist doesn't believe in God, an agnostic, excuse me, doesn't believe that they can really know if there's a God. And their framing is in the negative. Secular humanism, in some ways, is a positive rebranding. For it's framed in the positive. And the positive view is this. Humans flourish through a secular or non-religious approach to life. So a little over 20% of Americans are non-religious. And many of these would fall into the secular humanist camp, even if they don't use that word. Not all of them, but many would. Um, I believe many more Americans function as secular humanists, even if they have some type of cultural window dressing of Christianity or another faith. They cling to the nostalgia of their faith, but it doesn't shape how they live. They don't pursue flourishing through faith. They're pursuing human flourishing through secular means. It's just they might decorate their house for Christmas or something like that. So what's an example of this? So these examples don't use the term, but I use them just so we can kind of wrap our mind around, okay, that's what secular humanism might be. Okay, so, um, and I know these are popular with you, but, um, with some of you, but Disney, okay, Disney functions in this way, and I like Disney, I've taken my kids to Disney, okay, but consider all the movies you grew up on and maybe still watch, you know, Disney Plus is a big deal these days. Some have vague levels of spirituality, really vague, but most do not. They present non-theistic, so there's no God in, in the stories, or they're secular stories. And we gravitate to them because they're good stories, and they tell stories of human flourishing, and they often present values we like. For the most part, we think humans would flourish if they embraced values espoused by, I don't know, Movies like Frozen, Moana, Beauty and the Beast. There are like elements to that, that that we find admirable, but none of it seems to think we need God to find human flourishing. Another contemporary example would be the Apple TV show Ted Lasso, which follows an American football coach who becomes a British soccer coach. It just won multiple Emmy Awards. In the show, Ted Lasso is an admirable human being. He's very likable. And in our cynical, sarcastic world, he offers a refreshingly positive outlook. He models forgiveness. He brings people together. But he, he doesn't do any of that through a religious lens. There's no faith. Um, now, 
unless it, it happens in a future episode that I'm unaware of, right? There's, there's no faith. They're see, seeking human flourishing and modeling the pursuit of human flourishing, but faith is not a part of it, okay? So I guess I should just say this. Secular humanism in practice can be very likable, and there can be things that we say, hey, I agree with that aspect of, of what they're doing there, you know? But for the Christian, what we're ultimately going to say is that it's incomplete. So we need to acknowledge what they are. Um, they are accounts of reality that espouse that human flourishing can happen without God. And it's only a slight leap to then say human flourishing happens best without God. And then it's only a slight leap to say that religion and faith diminish human flourishing. And is that not we, what we see often? Okay. Hey, you can pursue human flourishing without God. It's best without God. And then the flip side, um, religion or theistic or faith claims actually hinders human flourishing. And many in our world are saying that today. That's what secular humanism claims, either in subtle and direct ways or direct affirmations. In essence, reject faith so that you can find meaning, purpose, and community through science and philosophy. And this directly contradicts the words of Jesus, where he says in John 10.10, I came that they might have life and have it to the full. Jesus says he is the path of human flourishing. So let's dig a little bit deeper into some of these descriptions about what we mean by secularism or pursuing human flourishing without faith. Kind of Many say now we live in a secular age. What does that mean? So the secular or non-godly perspective has two main qualities, haunted by imminence and doubt towards transcendence. So I apologize for the smarty pants words this morning, but imminence is something or someone that is close, relatable, and explainable. So imminence is something that's close and understandable. Transcendence, though, is something or someone that is far off, beyond us, and at times unexplainable. So imminence has little to no mystery. Transcendence relishes mystery. And Christianity has always tried to hold imminence and transcendence together. The incarnation of Jesus shows us how the transcendent God becomes imminent in the flesh of Jesus. And early Christians would talk about that specifically to combat the Gnosticism of their day. And baptism and communion show us how transcendence and imminence come together. Because uh, baptism and communion are um, resemble and in many ways reenact the incarnation. So in contrast, secular humanism rejects transcendence. It harbors a posture of suspicion towards transcendence because it often reflects immeasurable mystery. It rejects the need for the metaphysical, so things that are beyond physical, in finding meaning and purpose. You, don't, you can find meaning and purpose in physical. You don't need beyond physical to find meaning and purpose. It believes you can find it nearby. You don't have to go looking far. Um, and it's hard to wrap our minds around the prevalence of the suspicious doubt posture. I mean, it is everywhere. Um, I mean, at its best, it's a desire not to be naive, but at its worst, it's incredibly cynical. And we see the prevalence of suspicion all over the place in our age. So thinking about the being haunted by imminence and doubt towards transcendence, some describe this as, as a dome effect. Okay, so sports reference. Consider ballparks for baseball and football. Originally, and mostly, those fields are outside, right? 
Starting in the 1970s, technology led to the creation of dome fields like Astrodome, Superdome, Kingdome. Well, of course, grass doesn't grow under a roof. They had to make fake grass or astroturf in order to simulate the game experience. And on one hand, this was an exciting technological development. We can play ball without worrying about the unpredictable, even dangerous things above us. We don't have to worry about weather. We can play year-round at 70 degrees without rain. And yet, eventually, people missed grass. People missed the air. They missed, they missed the risk of rain. They missed the things above. They missed the old waves. And so you saw, especially in baseball, fewer and fewer stadiums have domes. And maybe they have retractable roofs. And I don't know where the analogy goes that direction. But anyway, when the roof is closing and transcendence kept out, all you have is what's under the dome. And at first it seems like an achievement, but over time you wonder what was lost. In similar fashion, secularism, while doubting transcendence, often reflects a haunting by eminence. They believe this is all there is, and yet they wish there was something more. As the agnostic author Julian Barnes once said, and I love this quote, he said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Have you ever have you ever had just a flicker of that? I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I remember an NPR story of an atheist who kept going to church because he loved singing. And the hymns continued to speak to him in a way that he couldn't fully describe, and he would say, I don't believe in God, but I keep wanting to sing these songs, and these songs say something to me that I yearn for. And that's more than just religious nostalgia. While secularism doubts a divine being that is above and beyond, it demonstrates angst that what is nearby might be all there is. So how does a secular humanist find meaning and purpose? Because many secular humanists do have, have paths that they're seeking meaning and purpose, and some of my friends say they've achieved it. And, and so how does that work? It often happens through a remaking of Jesus' first and second commandment. So in the secular humanist framework, the first commandment is not to love God, but to love yourself with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I'll give them the benefit of the doubt that the goal is not narcissism. Instead, they aim for self-respect, healthy self, you be you, you do you, love who you are, all that type of stuff. And then the second commandment is then to love your neighbor as you have been loving yourself. Whereas in Christianity, love of neighbor flows out of love of God. In secular humanism, love of neighbor flows out of love of self. I define love by what it means for me to feel loved, and then I love you the same way. Look for that dynamic. Consider, consider the ways we might agree with aspects or we might find commonality at times, but then other times you're like, this is, this is very different from the ways of Jesus, because it, it is. It's very different from the ways of Jesus. A few weeks ago when I talked about Christian nationalism, I spoke of how conservative Christianity can at times be a gateway into the heresy of Christian nationalism if we're not careful. And a similar thing holds true for this. Liberal Christianity can at times be a gateway into the apostasy of secular humanism if we're not careful. And by the way, I'm using conservative and liberal terms um, in biblical and theological categories, not political categories. Liberal Christians often question long-held belief and assumptions about God's role in creation, the idea of sin, the continued relevance of the Bible, the fairness of judgment, 
the nature of the atonement at the cross and the physical reality of the resurrection. Liberal Christianity can often have a suspicious posture towards the mysterious and the miraculous in the Bible. It reminds me of the famous summary from H. Richard Niebuhr about liberal Christianity, where he describes it as a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. And I'll back to my own words here. You can wonder many things, but that is not the Christianity of the Bible. That's not the Christianity of the early church. For those who have sympathy, excuse me, for those who have sympathies with liberal streams of the faith, you may find sympathies with secular humanism. And it may become a temptation for you, just as I've seen Christian nationalism become a temptation for many of my conservative Christian friends. So I'd, I'd put it this way. If, if you put Christian nationalism and secular humanism up there and then say, which one of these do I kind of identify? Like one of the, the one that bothers you more is probably not your temptation. <laughs> the one that doesn't bother you as much, or maybe it doesn't bother you much at all. Like then, then that's the temptation for you. So why is secular humanism such a dangerous apostasy? First, in terms of human goals, it puts the emphasis on being nice and being happy. And while I like being happy and believe Jesus normally wants us to be nice, the Christian faith does not center on that. Instead, the Bible teaches us that our goal should be finding forgiveness for our sin and the means, in the Christian faith, the means is the Holy Spirit, by which we can become that which we were created to be so that the world can be what it was created to be, the kingdom of God, the new heavens, the new earth, redeemed humanity. It's not about just being nice, but about being holy like God. It may involve our happiness, but it may not. It's about finding meaning in the kingdom of God and laying our lives down so that we might find them. It's, it's pursuing sacrifice, taking up your cross in order that life may come on the other side. Second, flowing out of the secular humanism misunderstands human nature at least from my perspective, and, and I think the biblical perspective lines up with this. We're not just physical beings, but physical and spiritual beings. We have souls, but not just souls. We're embodied souls. We're not only physical any more than we're only spiritual. We're created as both, and to truly flourish, to find our God-given intention in this world, we must discover what our Creator wants for us. We did not come from nothing, but something or rather someone, and we must seek that someone to know how to fully live. Therefore, secular humanism does not give a satisfactory framework for knowing how to live. Third, secular humanism teaches us that our death is the end of our lives. There is no flourishing beyond your life, just the memories and legacy you leave for others. While Christians value those memories, we have hope and more. Therefore, secular humanism gives an underwhelming answer to the problem of death. Fourth, secular humanism rejects the resurrection of Jesus. In this view, he's still dead. Someone hid the body or lost the body or we didn't get the story right. But regardless, Jesus is dead. In contrast, we believe Jesus is alive. We believe Jesus conquered death. And therefore, if the death and resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of the gospel, then secular humanism represents a rejection of the gospel. Not just at the periphery of the gospel, but at the core of the gospel. That's why it's apostasy. 
As I've read and studied Christian nationalism and secular humanism in recent months, a song kept playing in my head. It's probably not a song you would expect, and it kind of resembles the time period when I grew up and kind of the years when I was finishing up high school and going to college. But you may remember in the the mid-'90s, singer-songwriter Jewel, she released this song, Who Will Save Your Soul? And I'm not going to try to guess what the the reason she wrote the song or the purpose of the song, but I find myself with the chorus stuck in my head a lot as I've been studying this, where she says, but who will save your soul? Who will save your soul? And when I listen to Christian nationalists, I keep thinking, but who will save your soul? The country can't do that. And when I listen to secular humanists, I keep thinking, but who will save your soul? You do have a soul. It needs saving. It's not something we can do on our own. We are called to resist these temptations, but even more, we are called to evangelize those who have been lured in. The solution to both is the gospel. The gospel lived and the gospel proclaimed. We must commit ourselves to the ways of Jesus. And when asked to give an answer, we must be ready to talk. We must be compassionate We must be good listeners, better listeners than maybe we've been in the past. But we must be ready to talk about the gospel when it comes up. When the idols of our age hurt people, we must speak up. And there have been times I have seen these idols hurt people. And I pray that God would forgive me for the times I've been silent. Our lives and our words will often be rejected, but Jesus faced the same thing. Ackland family, embrace the exile. I'll close with my own paraphrase of our closing reading from 1 Corinthians 1. This is my contemporary version of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18-24, my paraphrase. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are Christian nationalists and secular humanists. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise... And the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Christian nationalists demand a return to power. And secular humanists look for material wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Christian nationalists and foolishness to secular humanists. But to those whom God has called, both conservatives and liberals, it is Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Family, like anyone, there are days I struggle with temptation and doubt. But I want to tell you that I'm not 50-50 on our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I'm all in.